All right, well, we've got a big show here today. We've got a special guest. He is a partner at Abrigel Goldstein. He is a Twitter advocate and provocateur. Um, he is a, a criminal law uh, commentator, and I'm sure you've, you've probably heard his name on CBC or a number of different publications. Uh, he's a baseball enthusiast, and... Yeah. And he's with me here today, Michael Spratt. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me. And I forgot to mention, he's the Podfather. The he, Podfather. Yeah, you've host uh, an award-winning legal podcast, The Docket. That's right. We're coming up on episode. Our next episode will be ninety-nine. So we're looking at uh, episode one hundred. Okay. We're we're crossing the threshold. We've got we crossed a little while ago the half million uh, download mark. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's. Hey, look, it's not hard. You just got to outlast the competition, right? <laughs> That's just it. I saw somebody told me a figure. They said the average podcast lasts seven episodes. Yeah, which is like, I don't know how that can happen because there's so much to talk about. Yeah, I think, I think, and we were talking about this before we went on, but I think it's the editing that might dissuade like a lot of podcasters. Yeah, I mean, I think Emily uh, Tamman, who's uh, my spouse, but also uh, the co-host of, of my podcast, of our podcast, I think the reason why we're able to do it is because we live in the same place and we can start recording, you know, like at 10 o'clock at night, 9.30 at night after the kids have gone to bed. If we were having to like schedule time and get together and like not do it sort of just whenever we both felt like it because we're both in the same space all the time, I think it'd be a lot harder. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's park that. We definitely want to, I definitely want to talk about the docket uh, because even, I mean, when I first moved to Ottawa a few years ago, um, even then people were talking about the docket. Hey, do you listen to the docket? I mean, I think that was my, one of my first introductions to you and Emily was everyone talking about that podcast. Yeah. We've been going a while. Yeah. Getting old. So it's it's good, and so you've got you're on a, an upstart uh, podcast right now. So hopefully, I saw as well that you guys have a sponsor as well. So I feel like there's like a lot to shoot for. Here. All the big podcast yeah. money's going to start rolling <laughs> in for you any day now. Too. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's set the table here. Uh, we're recording in November. The federal election was a few weeks ago. Mike, you're a, an a very avid and enthusiastic uh, uh, political, I guess, uh, commentator. But I think that's maybe you're going to call me a socialist, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Which wouldn't be untrue. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's is that a bad word? Like it's, I don't think so. But yeah, I mean, one of the really cool things about uh, this election, I mean, it was crazy for me because uh, um, Emily, my spouse, was running for the NDP here in Ottawa Centre. Right, and she was running against the Environment Minister. And Catherine McKenna, yeah. Right. So, I mean, like, it was a crazy, she didn't win, um, FYI, if you, in case you're not a, a political aficionado that keeps up on these things. But, um, like, one of the really cool things uh, I found about this election, Teo, is that we are exist in the same office space, right? Like our offices are like literally down the hall from one another. And it was uh, awesome to have political conversations with you because I think we come at things like sort of differently, but we're sort of the same. But it's nice to talk to like someone on the right who I respect and can almost convince me about things. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And I, and I guess this leads us into the origin st our origin story. So we'll get back into the election, but it's a good segue. So my first encounter with you was when I was working in Peter McKay's office. He was the Minister of Justice, and you were giving evidence um, and testifying before the House of Commons, a House of Commons committee, as you do regularly. 
And I just remember in that moment, you were just really cutting a commentary, very witty, very direct. And I just remember being like, oh, this guy's like really tearing, tearing apart our position. You know, he's very much um, very aggressive in his in his advocacy, but good. And and I had a bit of a grudge against you. <laughs> and then I because I, I just thought of you as this like really mean, bitter guy. And I met you and I was like, this guy's one of the nicest lawyers I've met. And so it was it was refreshing to see where I think you're a great example of very strong advocacy, but on a human level, I mean, we get along very, very well and we come like you mentioned, we come at positions from from different perspectives, but also we have a lot in common. Yeah, which is I mean, one of the things that I really like about litigation and being in court and I think it's similar to politics this way that if you're like an honest, good politician, you're advocating and, you know, when you're having policy debates, just like when you're having litigation in court, you can be adversaries and come at things very differently and have different positions and, you know, be strident in your positions and very critical of the other people. But the best politicians that I know, the people who I get along with well from both the left and the right are the same as the best crown attorneys I know Um, that, you know, outside of court, you can tell that, that the person's a decent dude. And I think that, you know, you have more time yeah. uh, in those situations to actually listen to what they say, you know, on the floor of the house or on, in the courtroom. Yeah. And so I, I agree with you 100%. It's been good to get to know you and to continue to get to know you over the years. Um, but let's get back to the election now, now that we've set the table. Maybe I'd want to get your perspective on the local campaign, because obviously you're working on Emily's or with Emily on her local campaign. And, and maybe just your thoughts on the general election. I, I know we've spoken a little bit about it. I've got a ton of thoughts. I know you do, but let's get into it. Well, I think locally, I mean, I've seen Emily run. She ran in Ottawa Vanier in 2015 against, uh, in, a, in a liberal, yes. like, diehard riding. Yes. He's only ever been liberal. I used to live in that riding. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, like there was no chance for Emily to, to win there, even during 2011, during like the orange wave and stuff. The liberals, that's one of the, f- if the liberals lose Ottawa Vanier, they've lost everything, yeah. right? Um, and so she ran there in 2015. And unfortunately, Maura Boulanger, who is a liberal um, representing that riding, yeah. passed away. Yeah. And so she ran in the by-election. So I've actually got, got to see Emily run in three elections. Um, she ran in Ottawa Centre, because that's where we live. And unfortunately, Paul Dewar, who, who was the NDP MP, uh, um, for Ottawa Centre, lost to Catherine McKenna in 2015. He passed away as well. And I have to say that this was the best run campaign that I've ever seen. And I've okay. seen a bunch of campaigns. I mean, Emily crushed the debates, like was clearly head and shoulders the best candidate, had a great organization. The fundraising was great. The ground game was great. And she lost by 15,000 votes. Yeah. Like in the end, it wasn't even close. Yeah. And I mean, one of the most frustrating things locally was dealing with sort of the national campaign. Yeah. Um, Because everyone said, I want to vote for you, Emily. You're the best candidate, but I'm really scared of Andrew Scheer. I'm really scared of Doug Ford, even though he's not running. Yeah. I'm really scared of Donald Trump. Yeah. Like, Doug it's nothing to do. Premier. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so, like, it's it was hard to deal with that. And on one-on-one basis, Emily could convince all those people that, you know, strategic voting's not a thing, that we need to, you know, vote for what we believe in, and that she could do just as good a job as a, as a local representative. Right. But, you know, the national campaign and the national 
dynamics, I think, really play out on the local level. I don't think it always plays out in a fair in a fair way. And my God, it was a pretty crappy national campaign all around yeah, from everyone. It was ugly. And going into it, I think we all knew it would be ugly. But living through it, I mean, that was one of the ugliest campaigns I've seen in my my adult life. But Trudeau said he was going to run like a positive, like not ugly, not negative campaign. And then it devolved into that, I think, by the Liberals' own making. And, you know, there's some sure. self-goals, I think, that the Conservatives had. But it was just not very substantive. And I think one of the reasons why it turned into this, you know, pulling clips from social media feeds or, yeah. um, you know, talking about identity politics or people's personal views, I think there was room for that because on all sides, liberal and conservative, I'll give the NDP a little bit of a pass because I think that they had some bigger ideas. They're just from the liberals and the conservatives both. I don't think that there was like a big idea. There wasn't like a let's talk about NAFTA. There wasn't a let's talk about a big idea to, to you know, take some of the oxygen away from some of that pettiness. You know, I've worked in war rooms before. That strategy is is set up a year, a year and a half in advance, right? So everything we saw, and it was really to start out the, the election, it was just Twitter cancel culture. So let's go and let's let's have our opposition research guys and girls take a look and find something from a few years back and throw it out there. And that's how we're going to. And so that was the plan, I thought, from the Liberal Party, just rinse and repeat. And perhaps the Conservatives uh, engage in that as well. And then obviously, I think the blackface controversy, at least in my mind, after that, I didn't see too much of the Twitter. Everyone realized <laughs> that they were living in glass houses at yeah. that point, right? Like yeah. it's it's hard for for the liberals to do what was obviously their strategy of digging up dirt, right? And I mean, I think there's a place for that. We need to know what people said in the past and what their positions were. I think that the conservatives could have done a bit of a better job of, you know, owning positions and explaining it. But from both sides, from and, and this is true for all parties, I mean, I think the politicians just need to do a better job of, like, talking to people like people. You can explain away, um, well, not even explain away, but you can have principled positions and you can you can talk about things that you've done in the past because no one's perfect, but it's hard to do that when you're actually speak to the media and don't say anything. Yeah, I agree. But I think we need to differentiate between local candidates and a leader, right? And so for me, in my mind, if you're a local candidate, it's your first, second time running, whatever, but you're a local candidate. And we find a tweet from five years ago, seven years ago, 10, that's insensitive to enter the group, right? To me, I'm looking, I'm seeing a local candidate to me, just an apology is going to suffice. Like, I just, it's going to have to be a very serious statement for me to say, okay, this person is disqualified. An apology won't matter. Now, when we talk about a leader, for me, the threshold is now higher, right? And so now what you've said publicly in your past on Twitter and social media, I'm going to look at that with more scrutiny. And I think we all ought to, but I just thought, I thought we were just getting down a rabbit hole with the local candidates. And it does matter, but if, if there's a genuine apology and if it's a one-off situation, to me, I think, okay, let's move on here. 
But politicians are so bad at apologizing. Like even Trudeau didn't get it right the first few times on on you know the blackface scandal, in my opinion. Yeah. Because I think there's a reluctance to apologize, a reluctance to show any weakness, a reluctance yeah. to admit that you have changed as a person or that your positions have changed. And so I agree. Like I think that there can be like genuine and legitimate policies or someone can say, look, I said that on Twitter and that's the way I feel. Like I was, if choose an example, like I was pro-life then, um, you know, I'm pro-life now. This is why I feel that way. And that might be disqualifying for, for some voters, right? Right. Like, I don't think I could really ever vote for someone who, you know, made outright racist comments, no matter what the apology is. But I think that there's, you know, an unwillingness to admit that positions change or an unwillingness to admit that, you know, your adversary, your opponent um, could be right about something. Yeah. And I mean, it's just those strident positions that people seem dug in. And I mean, it's just not a good way to have a productive conversation. And when that happens at a national level, I think that really does influence local races and to the point where you don't get necessarily the best people in our first past the post system. Because, you know, if you take away that local representation, if you take away sort of like those 338 regional races, I mean, that's the basis of the first past the post system. And when you take that away and sort of just have it all geared on this national campaign, then I don't know, maybe it makes a case even more that we need some sort of electoral reform. Yeah, it's well, it it definitely devolves into a complete team sport. And I think we saw that with Trudeau's apology, where I noticed a few hours afterwards, Bob Ray, and I don't want to misquote, but it was something to the effect of, you know, we should be all proud of uh, the principle that the prime minister has shown in apologizing. And it's, you know, given a lesson to all of us. And I, it was, you know, essentially patting him on the back for apologizing. And I, I saw that on a number of, of other liberal MPs had put out statements similar to that, but maybe not going as far. And, and obviously Judy Scro, who, <laughs> I, once again, I don't want to misquote, but she said something to the effect of that black people look at him uh, with more, like, they, you know, they look up to him more and they, they look, they hold him in a higher regard now afterwards. And I'm just thinking, like, what's going on here? Like, where's, let's just have a sincere apology and let's let the voters decide. But I know. And the way that I look at it, too, I mean, I love asking candidates and partisans, like, who would you vote for? As if you're a conservative, who would you vote for as a liberal candidate? Like, if you're an NDP, who would you vote for for the conservatives? Because it can't be that, you know, as a political party, you have to be blindly loyal across across the board. I mean, I look at, you know, people that I respect on the other side that that I could very well vote for. Like if I look in the beaches, Nathaniel Erskine Smith is a liberal who I've got a lot of time for. Mm -hmm. If I look across the aisle at at the conservative party, someone like Aaron O'Toole, who, who I've disagreed. He's been on the podcast. I've disagreed with him on a lot of issues. Like we come at things very differently, but he's someone that if he was my local candidate, I would be happy with that as well. Yeah. He's thoughtful. He's well-spoken. Yeah. And when you can disagree with somebody, but still on some issues, but then agree with them on other issues and respect them nonetheless and think like, look, it obviously wouldn't be my choice for a conservative government. But if I had Aaron O'Toole representing me, that's something that 
I would be fine with, that I could live with, that I, I could talk to him and, and he'd be open to, to other ideas and to discussions. I mean, I think we need more of that rather than just like blind party allegiance. And so when the blackface photos were published, I thought immediately, that's it. This is disqualifying. The prime ministers, I, I've heard on another podcast, I forget who, who said it, but he's called him the woke in chief prime minister, you know, like captain of the cancel culture, like Mr. Progressive. Uh, I think he he corrected somebody, a female. Uh, she said mankind and he corrected her and he said humankind or something to that effect. I mean, you know, you can't get more progressive according to to him than, right? He was the, the standard for that. And so for, for, for him to have been hit with this, I thought, that's it. This is disqualifying. And obviously we know it wasn't. What were your thoughts? I'm surprised that this story sort of lost oxygen or there people weren't talking about, you know, the prime minister's actions, you know, a week later. Yeah. It seemed to have such a short lifespan. And I mean, I don't say that in sort of a, a way that you know, would say that there needs to be a certain lifespan or that it should dominate the campaign. But I think there was a lot there to unpack. I mean, I think you're right that Trudeau's sort of brand um, is being progressive, is being, you know, in touch with feelings, is being, you know, recognizing, you know, marginalized communities and apologizing for past wrongs, right? And live by the woke, die by the woke, I guess. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean... I think that there's room there for someone to make a mistake like that, which is racist, insensitive, and, you know, if it happened yesterday, it would be disqualifying. I think there's room to have legitimate apologies, self-reflections, and, you know, accountability. I don't think that it means that that automatically he should have resigned or that, that people should not have voted for him. Yeah. But the part that doesn't sit well with me is that this exact issue— having, you know, racist pictures and material about you was being played out in the United States right. for the past 12 months. And, I mean, a normal person, I think, would look at that and see like, oh my gosh, like politicians in the States have lost their jobs and resigned over this exact issue. I did that in the past too. And then if you really had the strength of the those convictions of being progressive and um, inclusive, I think you would have taken action before your hand was forced and before before it was published. Yeah. Because I think it's without a doubt that if those pictures weren't published, you would have never talked about it. And and I think that that is the disqualifying part for him. Yeah. And my surprise was that there's a number of progressive, probably a majority of Canadians would be progressive voters or kind of center left to left voters, right? If we just look at the plurality probably a majority of, of Canadians vote to the left or center-left. Are you surprised that the NDP didn't see an upswing at the cost of the Liberals? I, no. And I mean, because this is history, right? And this is what makes it so frustrating on the local level. Because this repeats time and time and time again. I mean, the NDP has progressive policies. The NDP, um, I think, did a very good job this campaign, especially about communicating those policies and, and being really principled. One of the things that attracted me to the NDP, and I only actually joined the party to, to um, support Emily in the nomination for the 
2019 uh, election. Right. So I hadn't been a, a party member before that, even when when Emily ran in oh, okay. 2015 and 2017. Um, but one of the things that attracted me to the NDP is on um, the anti-terrorism bill, Bill C-51. Um, that was a bill introduced by Stephen Harper following, you know, the terrorist attack on, on Parliament Hill. And it was a bill that initially had widespread public support and the liberals supported it. And at a time when there was such widespread public support for it, the NDP spoke out against it. Yeah. And over the coming months, the public support eroded until eventually, I think it was actually a pretty definitive election issue in 2015, to the point that some candidates had, you know, signed toppers on 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 the on the lawn signs that said, you know, kill Bill C-51. Yep. And the NEP took a principled position when it looked like that's not what the public was behind. And it turns out that their principles were were borne out. The Liberals, I mean, the difference between the Liberals and the NEP is, is that adherence to principle. And so... In the dying days of this election, when there, you know, when the NDP were polling uh, a bit better, and you know the leaders' uh, uh, ratings were were higher than than Trudeau's or any other leaders, um, you saw the campaign of of you know vote splitting fear of strategic voting fear um, that the Liberals ran, and that I think is the most negative part about this election: the yeah. the campaigning not on what you want to do, but campaigning against you know, an evil that you've amplified throughout the campaign. Right. And based on nothing at all. Right. I mean, I, I know you're not an Andrew Shear fan, but Canada is not going to look that much different under, right, four years of Andrew Shear. Well, I've argued that Canada hasn't looked that much different under four years of Justin Trudeau. Yeah. Like if you look at criminal justice policy, I think that the liberals have done, uh, have done more damage to the justice system than Stephen Harper did. Like if I look at, you know, there's some Bill C-51 stuff. I don't like the terrorism stuff. Um, the, there's minimum sentences under Harper, which I think are, are very, very, very bad. But the liberals haven't repealed any of those minimum sentences. They haven't um, rolled back any of the pardon changes that Harper did. And they've had legislation that have eroded procedural safeguards. Um, and I think to a large extent, on issues of the environment, on international relations, on um, on a number of issues, I just don't see the Liberals as being anything but smallly, incrementally better than than the Conservatives were. Well, let's get into the MMPs because I know this is a, a long running debate that we have, and uh, you just raised it. So, I mean, let's let's get into it. Um, maybe just I'll allow you to kind of put forward your position on on why you think MMPs are not good policy? Well, so mandatory minimum sentences are are unconstitutional. Um, they've been found to be unconstitutional in a lot of different circumstances. They've, they've been legislated by both the Liberals and the Conservatives. Um, but the evidence doesn't support their utility. Um, the the overwhelming body, and we've got 30 years or 40 years of evidence on this, is that mandatory minimum sentences don't deter crime. They don't reduce rates of criminal activity. Um, they don't rehabilitate anyone. People sentenced under mandatory minimum sentences um, will be released from custody at some point, and we know that they uh, they have rates of recidivism um, higher than the average population of, of jail. And we know that mandatory minimum sentences um, 
introduce perverse incentives into the criminal justice system. They uh, they eliminate judicial discretion to craft a sentence specific to the offense and the offender, um, and they're a one-size-fits-all solution. But they also transfer discretion because although judges don't have discretion to impose a sentence, Correct. crown prosecutors have discretion about whether to drop minimum sentences or not. And what that means is that you have people who are not guilty of offenses who end up pleading guilty to an offense because the prosecution has agreed to drop a minimum sentence. And that gives a great incentive for someone who's not guilty to plead guilty. They also give incentive for guilty people to go to trial. Because if you know you're facing a minimum and you're not going to get any credit for pleading guilty, why not roll the dice and you might be acquitted? So they they encourage wrongful convictions on one hand, but they also use tons of resources. And sort of the most damning thing, I think, is the evidence shows that mandatory minimum sentences uh, adversely affect um, racialized groups, marginalized groups, impoverished groups, um, and indigenous groups. I, you First, you started out, you said they are un, un, unconstitutional. I just want to clarify, you're saying that some have been, but you're not saying across the board, all MMPs are unconstitutional. Uh, I'm actually saying, yeah, they are. They haven't all been found to be unconstitutional, but we know that the Supreme Court and has struck down uh, some MMPs. Uh, courts of appeal have struck down many MMPs, and our superior courts have. So many have been found to be unconstitutional. Um, a, a judge here in Ottawa just recently struck down some of the human trafficking MMPs. Um, so, yes, a lot of them have been found unconstitutional. A lot of them are, aren't tested. But I'm saying that minimum— And, and minimum, to be fair, a lot have been upheld, right? Yep, some have, like, some have been upheld as well. Yeah. Um, not so much at the appellate levels, though, like not by the Supreme Court. Um, but what I'm saying is that, you know, minimum fines for impaired driving, those are, are unconstitutional. And I'm saying life sentences for first-degree murder, also unconstitutional in my opinion. I'd strike them all down. Okay, so uh, that was my next question. I was going to say, Mike Spratt, you're Minister of Justice, Attorney General of Canada, and then the MMP files on your desk. You can do what you want with it. You're striking them all down. Struck all down. Um, there's there's different ways that you could do it. Um, some have suggested that you can put in a sa judicial safety valve in the code. So you leave the MMPs in, but you say, in you know, unusual, extraordinary, justified circumstances with appropriate reasons judges can depart from the sentences. But I think the principal thing is to strike them all down. It strikes some people as, as you know, bananas that you would, you know, not have minimum punishments for first-degree murder, um, which currently is, you know, a life sentence with no eligibility for parole for, for 25 years. Um, if I was a judge... In 99.9% .9 of all cases of first-degree murder, that's probably what the sentence is going to be. Yeah. So that's the thing with our conversations, Mike, is we talk and, and you're very well-spoken. And at the end, I mean, we never we, we never end up falling in the same place. But I, I really do appreciate it because, one, it helps me understand the other side better. But, two, whenever we speak, I, I always end up thinking, well, we're not that far apart. No, and I right. bet if, we're, we're really not that far apart. If you all. and I were a judge and we were both hearing the same case, I bet our sentencing, leaving everything aside, would probably be pretty similar. Um, and, you know, I think that intellectually honest people and good advocates can do that. Like, defense lawyers should be crowns, crowns could be defense lawyers. Like, um, 
And people who are on different side of the aisles should be able to sit down and have these conversations without you saying that I'm soft on crime and pro child predators and me saying that you're, you know, a, a like throw away the key heartless, cons- like, you know what I mean? Like, and that's, I think that that's what we don't see enough, especially on criminal justice, but that's what we didn't see enough of in this election. Yeah. And it's your climate denier or yeah. you're for a healthy planet. It's like, no, there's a ground where you can talk about this and actually have a legitimate conversation if you can agree on the primary facts. Yeah. And that's the nature of our system. That's the nature of where we're at now with social media and the way we digest media. So it's short sound bites. Well, a long form discussion isn't what we want to hear. We want to hear a six minute clip of someone getting called out. Right? I know, and that is pretty fun. Like, you know? I want to hear that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not clicking on the 60 minute conversation. No, but so, Mike, I want to switch now to your Twitter. We were talking about uh, different sides where I do call people out different quite regularly. Call outs. Okay, so let's start with the LRT in Ottawa, and then I want to get to the legal aid oh, yeah. promise with Doug Ford, because I, I took a look at it a few days ago, and obviously you're deeper into the legal aid thing than I am, but I, I had a different position than you did on that. So let's start with LRT in Ottawa. So for anybody who's unaware of what that is, so LRT is similar to a subway, except it's slower and smaller, basically, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, a transportation system. It's a train. Um, it's electrified right. in in Ottawa. We've got you know some pretty big tunnels that we've spent billions of dollars making that go under the city to try to take some of you know the the dozens and dozens and dozens of buses off the road and put them onto this electrified tram underground. Yeah, and so in Ottawa, the L I don't know the exact date when uh, LRT was was released or open to the public, but it was open to the public after significant delays, um, cost overruns. And then um, during the first week of it being opened up to the public, uh, there was incredible delays because the doors, if somebody's, if the doors are closing and somebody's trying to get in and I don't know. If you touch the door, the whole train breaks. (laughs) Say that again, say that again. If you touch the door, the whole train breaks. Yeah. So my understanding is people were just rushing in and the doors closing and they would touch it or, or try to jar it, though. I don't know. But basically, that seemed like if there was any interference when the door was closing, the the train would stop or just they, they, it wouldn't operate properly. Yeah. And there's other problems, too. I mean, the, the stairs and all the subways and all the, the yeah. stations are super, super slippery when wet. Yeah. Um, so it's just all of these little problems that come from a really bad procurement system, you know, the lowest bidder sort of sort of uh, framework that the city uses. And the thing that really pissed me off about this is the city, as, as municipalities can be, were secretive, were um, combative. This is the mayor and, and city staff. Yeah. Were... Um, dismissive and outright hostile to anyone who questioned, you know, what's taking so long? Why didn't we do this? How come we didn't look at the contract more? Why are we, why are we forging ahead with a second billion dollar stage without knowing what's wrong with the first stage? Right. And so correct me if I'm wrong, in in this, in this past summer, we were looking at phase two, at approving phase two of this project to expand the rail and Phase one wasn't complete. It was delayed, and there was significant questions. I think I read an article with 
a few months ago for phase one and said, well, it's having trouble. The test trains are having trouble running in the winter this with the snow building up. And I'm thinking, well, not that, such a good idea in Ottawa. That's foreseeable. Yeah. And the problem with the stage two is that there was a number of bidders. One of those bidders was SNC-Lavalin. And so there was a call by some of the councillors to say, let's pump the brakes for a second. Number one, SNC says they're going in a lot of trouble. And if they lose this little case that's going on that, that people might have heard about, they could go bankrupt. So maybe we should take a close look at if we really want them bidding. And the report the city wasn't releasing the technical scores. So like there's three different bidders, they each get technical scores, you have to score over a certain amount, and the city wasn't releasing those scores. And they were still pushing ahead, the mayor and, and you know, his councillors and, and city staff were pushing ahead without the rest of the councillors knowing the scores or forcing a vote on it. And people that were saying, I can't vote for it. They were being called out by the mayor for being like against public transit, yeah, against I, money, I against this. I remember that. Well, it turns out that that the score of the, the SNC bid that they approved actually didn't meet the technical requirements. So the thing that really pisses me off about, about the light rail and how, how our Ottawa mayor dealt with it isn't that the procurement process wasn't good because God knows every procurement process is bad. God knows every single public works project comes in over budget and runs late, but it's hard the second and third time you're not being transparent and you're criticizing people who want to hold you account to account and want that transparency when you're attacking them yeah. and these things happen uh, and, and these problems occur and you're still doing the same thing, that just calls into question like leadership in general. Yeah, and that's my issue as well. So in the summer, I remember uh, Mayor Watson was, was pushing it, railroading it forward, if you will. Um, and then we have all of these issues the past few weeks with LRT and he was a bit quiet. I may have heard a comment or two. And then the past few days, he's been coming out saying he's very frustrated. He's been, you know, kind of, I'm with the people. I'm very frustrated with uh, this process and what's been going on. We're going to get to the bottom of it. And I just thought, I mean, we tried to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, where was the transparency a few months ago? But, you know, I, it, it to me, it looks hypocritical. Like, Period. Totally, it does. And I mean, this is sort of his mayoral style. Um, I mean, you'll remember that he blocked both me and Emily on Twitter for being like not vulgar, not throwing around names, not even chippy like I was. I mean, my, Emily got blocked for just questioning a decision. Um, and then she sued the mayor. Yeah. And forced him to unblock everyone that he ever blocked because it infringed on charter rights. And so can you comment on that? Is that before the courts right now? Where it is was, that? They, so it got settled. Oh. She, she and a couple of other complainants like launched the lawsuit. Um, Paul Champ was their lawyer. And first the, the mayor argued that his is a private account so he can block whoever he wants. Right. Uh, and then, of course, it wasn't. I mean, he was making announcements on it. He was doing all this. It was a very good argument that this was limiting sort of the public square in terms of interactions with with politicians. And so the suit was, they dropped the suit after he um, admitted that it was or acknowledged that his account was a public account um, and a political account. And he promised to unblock everyone that he ever blocked. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good outcome. And there is no... Nothing in the agreement that you couldn't disclose that. You're not breaching a, a non-disclosure provision nope, that's, right now? that's what it is. Okay, so if the great. mayor blocked you in the past, you're probably um, just muted now, probably, right? Got you. 
Um, okay, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, but uh, we've been running for a bit. I do want to get to Doug Ford. Let's do it. All right, so set the table here. I mean, this is your baby. Um, there's, there's, uh, the story is ongoing. Like this story hasn't died yet. It's still ongoing, is it not? Yeah. So I'll give you the the Coles Notes version. I'll leave out all my personal connections with Doug Ford when I ran into him, and he gave me a cell number, and he actually called me a few times after I wrote critical things. Well, that's great. Which is good. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, I I think that that's sort of his mo. He didn't change anything or do anything, but it, genuine. Right. He said, call me. He called you back. Exactly. And so that's why I believed him. Yeah. When right after uh, the province announced some really massive legal aid cuts that had some, you know, really devastating effects on services and legal aid cuts, we're talking like $133 million. They came in that were announced after legal aid had already set its budget for the year and after they were partway through the year. So it's not even stuff that, that legal aid could have, you know, built in these cuts into services. It was immediate and it was in, in, in the middle of the fiscal year, basically. Um, Doug Ford was under some criticism for these cuts, and he, he called into a, a radio station in Toronto um, and said, look, I don't know what everyone's complaining about. If you have a problem with legal aid, if you have been denied legal aid um, and you need it, call me. I guarantee you'll get legal aid, which sounds great. And he's a man of his word. He said, you know, gave me his gave me his phone number and said text me and I'll call you and so I wrote to him for all of my clients who are denied legal aid you know an elderly woman who's charged with you know serious offenses with no criminal record living on a pension who is denied legal aid or a kid um there was very sympathetic and deserving individuals who live below the poverty line and facing you know cuts that didn't qualify for legal aid in part because of the funding cuts have legal aid you know clawing back sort of their eligibility requirements and there was no response and i kept writing him as a one-way pen pal situation where i wrote him every day for i don't know 70 or 80 days Um, (laughs) meanwhile you have a like a a busy practice as well oh yeah yeah this was like a full-time full-time job on top of a busy practice um, and no response from him. And so I did the, the thing that, you know, any good lawyer would do. I started doing some freedom of information requests on his office and on the attorney general's office about his promise, what policy thought went into it, who he had talked to before, and how he's responding to people writing for legal aid. Yeah, and, but here's my thing, and let's get into it now. I didn't, I didn't think he was literally saying it. Anybody who wants legal aid, just call me and I'll give you legal aid. Like, I didn't take it literally. Did you? Well, no, I didn't take it literally. I took it as he didn't like being criticized for a policy decision. And he was saying this on air to try to take some oxygen out of the criticism or try to deflect some of the criticism because people hear that and they might believe him. They might forget about things. So I didn't take it as being serious, partially because he doesn't have the power to issue issue legal aid certificates. This is an arm's length organization. But he never walked back his comments. In fact, he doubled down on them a couple months later. And the freedom of information requests that I sent in revealed people, real people who were writing into him and saying, these are my desperate situations. And some of those stories that of the letters that he received that I got back through this information request were, you know, were troubling. You know, immigrants who are can be deported, mothers who might lose children, people living below the poverty line who are facing jail and can't and were denied legal aid. And his response, as disclosed through these documents, were to tell the people literally, this isn't my file. It's not my problem. Well, wait, wait. We've got to 
you need to contact the attorney general. Well, yes. Well, and then wait. the attorney general yeah. said, we wait, can't politically interfere with let's legal unpack, aid. Let's unpack the first part because there's more context there. So I know enough to know that when you write into the pre- the premier, the premier is not responding to you. There's he's he's getting hundreds, if not thousands, of correspondences a day. There's a department, and there's standard responses. Now, now to be fair, I don't know exactly how Premier Ford's office does it, but I know this is how this works, right? Yes. And so, the standard response would be, well, Premier Ford, this is not his portfolio. This would go to the justice minister. So, I, I just wanted to clear that up. It's not as if kind of Doug Ford was saying, hey. Right, but I, can't I mean, deal like with this. he hit the response from him in his name is this isn't the the exact words he used were this isn't my responsibility. Yeah. Um, you need to contact the attorney general. Then the attorney general's response was legal aid is an arm's length uh, organization, and we have no control over what happens there. Yeah. Um, and in that context, I mean, I think that he should have clarified his comments. Yeah. I, and you know what? That's fair because that's inconsistent. I, I didn't take his comments literally. I, I, I said, okay, I see what he's trying to do here. But I think, you know, I used to practice criminal law. I, I have a lot of criminal, uh, excuse me, friends in criminal law. Um, I know how much this affects people and affects accused. I think it would have been appropriate to, to walk it back or to clarify I, I didn't see that. I didn't, and if he did, I didn't see it. But yeah. that's sort of the problem that you that you see. Like walk it back, but that means that you'd have to take accountability. You'd have to admit that you made a mistake, and you would have to actually then talk about the real problem, which is funding for legal aid and what should the funding be. And uh, and, and those are hard conversations. But let's have it. I mean, I, I speak to criminal lawyers all the time, and and you know, frankly. I haven't spoke to a criminal lawyer who says that legal aid funding should be diminished, right? It's always more. And so let's just have the conversation about, okay, well, what is the right amount given the uh, province's finances and other priorities? Let's just figure out what what is the minimum, right? And everybody's range is going to be different, but let's have that conversation. And I, agree on primary facts, right? There's this really awesome uh, report from the World Bank, right? Um, that says, you know, for every dollar of legal aid funding, it actually saves $6 in other costs because cutting legal aid funding actually just shifts costs to other areas, backed up courts, jails, healthcare, things like that. So I think what we need, and this is my pitch, this is my always my pitch. I wrote an article about what I'd like to see from the government on the justice file, and this is in every single one. We need a nonpartisan law reform commission at the federal level and at the provincial level to sit down and agree in a nonpartisan way on what are their primary facts and what reforms can we have to the criminal code? How should we fund legal aid? How should we deliver justice? Like, let's agree on the primary facts and let's have a body that can take a long-term nonpartisan view over things so that we're not looking at four-year election cycles, two-year election cycles, because nothing gets done. Um, so so we're going a bit long here, but we're having a good conversation. But I want to close up. I don't want to finish this without talking about the docket. So just tell me about the origin story, right? So we started off talking about your podcast, The Docket. From what I can see, the most popular legal podcast in Canada. Everybody talks about it. Um, what's the origin story? How did this come about? And tell me about the artwork as well. The artwork's pretty cool. Yeah, so our artwork, I'll give a huge shout out to Parker Maserol, who um, is 
one of the best artists I've ever seen. Um, his dad, Terry Maserol, used to be a defense lawyer here okay. in Ottawa and is now a crown prosecutor out in Alberta, I think. Um, but just through knowing Terry, I saw a bunch of his son's art. Like, even when this kid was eight, I was like, this kid needs to drop out of school and just be a comic book artist. He's so good. <laughs> and so, like, he, you know, he just does some stuff for us. So yeah. it's, it's great. Uh, I do admit that the art right now is not very... Um, uh, there's no gender parity in the art. Right. It, it is a male super figure who's me and totally doesn't have uh, Emily in the picture, really. Gotcha. So check out, where can they, michaelsprat.com? Yeah, michaelsprat.com. You can find out, uh, you can find a link to the show page and then we're on iTunes and right. all those things. But really, I've I've been an early adopter of podcasts. There's something I listen to all the time. It's something that I've always wanted to do. Um, and then Leah Rusimano, um, a former colleague of mine uh, who used to work with me he and i st um, started the podcast and then um, when leo split ways from our firm emily came on board and it's been really good because i'm sort of the opinionated uh swearing uh host <laughs> and she is the more moderate more intelligent and more measured host yeah and i mean really why we want to do it is we look at it as sort of like a podcast for my mom yeah. Like someone who doesn't have a legal background, who yeah. is a teacher, who's just like a normal person um, to be able to explain what's happening in court, explain what's happening in parliament, you know, with our obvious spin on things like we don't hide our, our right. bias or where we come from things, but just to explain what can be really mysterious and um, sort of, you know, very intricate processes in both those areas that can be mystifying for people. Yeah, I think that's the strength or one of the strengths of the podcast is that it's not esoteric. You don't have to be a lawyer to listen to it or enjoy it. And I think that's one of its its biggest strengths. And I mean, quite frankly, one of the reasons why we like doing it is because we it forces me, who's sort of like an introvert extrovert, like I'm not real extroverted. Emily's the one who like yeah. knows people's names and remembers people's names and talks to people and has relationships. Like that's really hard for me. It allows me to go and talk to really great people. Yeah. I mean, we did a, a podcast with Aaron O'Toole. Um, we recorded some stuff with Rob Nicholson. Oh, wow. um, you know, we've talked to senators. Um, one of the things that we did at the Making a Murderer uh, Netflix yeah. uh, documentary, I mean, we talked to the lawyers involved with that. We talked to criminologists. Wow. It allows us, like, really selfishly, a way to talk to people who we sort of want to talk to yeah. and have no real good reason to talk to yeah. but for the podcast, right? No, I've, I can relate. I've got a few, uh, a, a few of those examples or a few of those interviews coming up where it's people that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to sit down with or connected with and I'm able to do it through the podcast. And it's great because there's so many exceptional people out there and with great stories. And I mean, these are things that Emily and I talk about anyway at home. So it's, we just basically turn a mic on and have the conversations we would normally have. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's it's really important to try to um, demystify some of these processes, to explain what happens in court in common ways, because we don't really hear that in political circles. No. And, and we don't hear that in the media. Yeah. It's, it's very hard in like a 600-word, you know, National Post story or Ottawa Sun or Toronto Sun story um, to accurately explain what's going on in court and have like with minimum sentences have those conversations that really require explanation and i think that that's what we need a bit of a dialogue yeah because really if we're not all coming to our conclusions from the same primary facts and the same playbook um then we're just talking right past each other exactly and yeah. i mean i think it's better if we talk to each other yeah 
there you have it. The Podfather. There we go. That was nice. Well, thanks, Mike, for taking some time out. I appreciate it. Anytime. I don't have to edit it. I don't have to do any work. I just have to sit back and it's going to drop in my feed at some point, which is great. Yeah. No, I'll be doing all the editing on this, but it should be pretty easy. This was a good conversation. Yeah. Anytime, man. I really appreciate it. And I think that it's it's really good. We should get a political podcast going from the left and the right. We can talk about all these burning issues. I think we should. We'd, we'd have a good podcast. I think so. I think we'd end up agreeing too much. That's the thing, too. Like, I'm not... I'm on the right. I'm definitely on the right. I identify as a conservative, but we'd agree too much, I think. I think we would. And I mean, like, maybe you just need to channel your, like, inner Michelle Rempel, and I'll channel my inner Charlie Angus, and I'll just go at it. I was thinking, like, a Rush Limbaugh, but maybe that's too much there. That's too good. Yeah, it's too much. You gotta be someone from Alberta. Okay. Well, we'll figure it out. You'll find yourself in cabinet that way. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Let's have another conversation soon. Anytime, buddy. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe on iTunes podcast, and feel free to share and spread the word.